I'm going to do something that I may decide was a mistake later. But um, <clears throat> I, first of all, I just want to say I am so thankful um, to have Sam Peck on staff as the worship pastor at Heritage. Um, I, the, uh, thank you, guys. Um, he actually is in probably the hardest position that you can be in as a, in a church is being the worship pastor because um, music is artistic and therefore it's subjective by nature and everybody has different things that they like. Um, I have one daughter that wants to listen to Modest Yahoo, which is like Jewish rap essentially. And then I have another daughter that loves country. I, I, how that happens, I don't know, but we rock all of them in our house is what we do. And and that's great. Um, Sam has has done so much to just make worship so much better at Heritage and brought a professionalism to it um, that a lot of it was just me before, frankly, and I just didn't have the time to be able to do that. Um, but with, with doing all of that and with bringing the new musicians, um, I am aware, I have heard that there are some that, that are, were struggling with some of the volume levels on Sunday. Um, and I want to just share with you guys a couple of things. First of all, I hear you, and we're, we're working on doing things to adjust and deal with all that. I want you to know that. Sam is not the kind of worship leader that just says, this is what's cool, this is what's best, this is what's hip, we're just going to do this. Um, actually, early on when we hired Sam, someone made a comment to me, and I don't even remember who it was, so I hope I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but they made a comment to me where they said that... Um, um, they felt that worship seemed more spirit-led when I led worship because it was just me and the acoustic guitar and it was that kind of soft, you know, kind of a thing. And I was like, that's funny because um, I appreciate that, but worship, when I was doing that, was me on Saturday evening going, oh no, I'm doing worship tomorrow. Quick, what songs can I throw together? And I guess if that's spirit-led, then I was really spirit-led um, when I led worship. But um, but Sam, what I appreciate about Sam is that he, he reads the text in advance. He talks to me about the sermon, about the content. He prays, I'm telling you guys, he prays over the set lists and the songs. He scours the content, the words of the song. So we're not just throwing any old song up there. And he puts a ton, a ton into it. Where Sam is at a disadvantage is that he is maybe the most gifted worship leader in the valley in the worst room in the valley to be a worship leader. It's just the truth of it. So, um, for example, lately they've been doing some stuff with full drum kits. And when you use a full drum kit in this room, it sets the volume at a specific level that there's nothing you can do to change that. And so everything else, all the other instruments then have to be amplified to hit that level or it just doesn't work. And that's what you've been experiencing if you felt lately it's louder than it used to be. So what we've been trying to do is take a lot of steps, uh, getting it, we got a drum shield. This week they added some foam pads and, and we're going to talk with the board tomorrow. This doesn't put pressure on you guys, but uh, we're going to talk with the board tomorrow about um, just putting the drummer in a box, frankly, that we can completely have him enclosed in and can control the volume levels on and we're going to work on that. But um, what we're also trying to do is make sure that we keep it, there, that there's a mix, we understand that there's a lot of different um, styles and tastes in the room. So like, for example, this weekend, worship's very acoustic, um, will be much more mellow, if you will. Um, Easter's going to be high energy, and that's going to be fun. But um, hopefully we'll have a box by then. If we don't, we'll figure that out. But I just want to encourage you guys and let you know that, that we are working on that. We have not just decided as a church we're going to be the new cool rocking out and you're just, you guys are, oh, too bad. Uh, hope you stay. That's not our heart at all. Um, we appreciate your patience with that. Um, but also, um, we, it's just difficult because I have just as many people, even in the older age groups, that'll come up and say, oh, worship was so good this weekend. And then five minutes later, you get, it was really loud this weekend. It's like, what do you do with that? It's just hard. So um, I appreciate your prayers uh, for us as we navigate all that. But, but I bring this up mainly just to say, um, we're blessed to have Sam and this guy's heart is gold and I hope you guys will just be an encouragement to him and, uh, and he'll just bear with us through all that. So Sam, thank you for all that you do and uh, um, we'll just keep growing by the grace of God as we uh, learn how to do all this stuff, yeah? Yeah, you can clap for Sam. But uh, you know, if you know who the board members are, we're gonna vote on a box tomorrow so you could lean on them if you think it's too loud. Maybe <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning, tonight. Well, I'm going to be, I'm going to teach for a while, <laughs> so get comfortable. <laughs> Mark chapter 4, and let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for time in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the, the gift of worship. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege and honor to be able to come before your gates with thanksgiving, enter your courts with praise, to be able to declare your goodness and get our eyes off of ourselves and our own problems for a while. And Lord, now that, that we've had opportunity to do that here in the middle of the week, Lord, for some people, it's been a rough week already, and we're already praying for Friday. And, and for others, Lord, I, there's just a lot of different scenarios playing out in this very room. But Lord, your word is eternal, written for all people in all times. And so I pray, God, that you would speak to your people this morning through your word. That as we're gathered here, Lord, for the specific purpose of discipleship and growing in that area, Lord, would you speak to our hearts in that way? But Lord, maybe you'll just speak through your spirit and by your scriptures to someone that has nothing to do with the actual words that I'm saying. I pray that would happen, God. May you be our teacher tonight. So we just pray your blessing, Lord, on this service, on our kids and those working with them. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. Hey, by the way, I, I'm going to announce it Sunday too, but I just was so encouraged to see this. Um, we have already got every single slot, this is what I was told today, for the children's ministry on Easter, which is a big, big thing, um, that we have actually started to have to turn people away for Easter Sunday um, for help this week. So thank you so much for that. That would be the area I thought we would fill last. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Um, and if you were planning on volunteering and, you're not, and you know, now we don't need, just watch for sevens. Just because everyone's on the list doesn't mean they show, but we would appreciate that. And I'm just encouraged by the servant hearts that you guys have. So thank you. Mark chapter 4 is where we are today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 25. Um, it's one of the few texts in Scripture that comes with its own commentary right there on the spot. So it's a great text to look at. It's also one that we probably know, if anyone here has any experience at church of any length of time at all, you've heard this before a million times, and so you're prepared for a sermon about evangelism and about spreading the gospel. And it is that, but it is also way, way more than that and has very specific applications to us. So may God give us uh, new eyes to see as we look at his word today. Amen. So in Mark chapter four, um, it's been a really long day. He's been battling with crowds. Jesus' family has thought he was crazy. He's had fights with Pharisees. He's had a long day of ministry with crowds literally pressing. Remember, pressing upon him um, violently even. People trying to get at Jesus so they can get from Jesus. That's, that's the goal there. doesn't mean they're clamoring around him to worship him. They know he can make their life better. And so they're coming there for those specific things and they're really pushing him. And today it comes to a whole new level. In verse 1 it says, And again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. So, so Jesus is being pushed by crowds so much that he ends up getting in a boat and pushing just off of the water, um, which has its advantages when you're teaching a large crowd. There are, uh, most people, most scholars believe this is um, right up there with some of the largest crowds Jesus will ever teach. And certainly the largest up to this point. And so they've all crowded around this shoreline, but now he's in a boat pushed off into the water. So the crowd can't push on him, but he can turn and teach, which makes for a really good um, kind of acoustic effects there. And they're better than in this room. Let me say that right there. And so Jesus is teaching. And I can tell you this. I don't know if all of you guys know this or not, but like I spend a lot of time on lakes. I go out fishing and, and it's amazing to me how many people don't realize how voices travel on the water. Because I have heard things on the lake before from other people. I've heard fights between husband and wife. I've heard, all, I've heard people negotiating drug deals. I've heard everything out there. And the boat might be way over on the other side, and they're just talking in normal voices, and it's as if I can hear them, and they're right beside me. It's amazing some of the things that I've heard. And so, uh, I, oh, the stories I could tell, but I won't. 
And uh, so, so this is what's going on. Jesus is taking advantage of this situation. He's going to be able to speak in a way where everyone could hear them. And, and, and so now here he goes, but, but here's what's weird. He's, he's got this perfect environment where he can sit, he can speak, the word's going to travel across, everyone's going to hear him. It's like the perfect opportunity to teach to make sure everyone understands. And then he teaches in a way that purposefully people don't hear. That's a little strange, but that's what he does. Look what it says beginning in verse 2. He was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus finally has everyone's attention. He's in a safe place. Everyone can hear him. It's a great environment. He can sit down in the boat and be a little bit more relaxed and teach in a way that everyone can hear. And he starts going, so there was this farmer. And he threw some seed and that didn't work over there and that didn't work and over there and that didn't work over there, but that place over there worked. Think about it. And that's his sermon. It's among many. Now, Matthew chapter 13 gives the parables and we, we know from Matthew 13 that these are kingdom parables. These are parables about the kingdom of God and there are seven of them that he's going to give. This is, the book of Mark here gives us what we're going to look at today anyway, the first of these. And he gives this story. So a parable. A parable, I, was, I still remember the definition I was given. I went to a private Christian school for the first till, up till third grade growing up. And I still remember it. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Anyone else know that definition from back in the day? I think that was in our, our curriculum. But that's, that's really what it is. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, it's not an allegory. It's not if you think of, for example, Pilgrim's Progress, the story Pilgrim's Progress. It's an earthly story, has a heavenly meaning, but it's written in such a way that every little detail as you're going along the way, it, it represents something. You can see some of this in stories, for example, Chronicles of Narnia, for example. And there's just all sorts of things to glean from this massive, huge picture that's being portrayed there. That's not what this is. This is one story with one thing that he's intending to get across. It's not intended to be dissected every little deal, but here's the point of the story, which Jesus is going to give us here pretty soon. That's what a parable is. And so it's done in such a way that um, the meaning is apparent to some, but the meaning is intentionally not apparent to others. And that's weird to think about. Um, there are people that will write whole books about sermon series and, and they talk about things like make sure every word you use when you do a Sunday sermon is not a word that people have to have been in church 20 years to learn. You've got to make sure everyone can understand every single thing that's there. And there are huge uh, uh, movements that push towards this. And that's where groups like seeker sensitive, and you've, if you've heard phrases like that, that it's important that you're wasting your opportunity if you teach in such a way that everybody doesn't understand everything that's going. But here Jesus breaks all those rules and he is intentionally teaching in such a way that they will not understand everything that's there. I mean, take a look at what he says here. Go to verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, and then he quotes Isaiah, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? That's a hard passage to think about. He says, I'm teaching in such a way that people will see the kingdom, but not understand it, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, there, this is a good point for us to just stop just for a moment 
and address the, the reality of the tension that exists in Scripture with regards to free will and God's sovereignty, with regards to Calvinism and with regards to Arminianism. Um, a lot of people, this becomes, this kind of a text becomes really problematic for a lot of people who spend a lot of time on those debates. So the, the Calvinists, for example, that would say God chooses who he chooses and he doesn't choose who he doesn't choose. And we're talking hard line. Remember, there's a wide spectrum of this, but the hard line Calvinists who would say only the people God chooses are going to understand this. No one else is going to have a shot at this. They would point to this text and they could probably make a pretty compelling argument because that is what it seems to say, right? That this person's not going to understand and I want to make sure that they don't understand. And so some will build a big argument on, on verses just like this. And in a case like this particular passage, they can be quite compelling. Others will rebut against that by then trying to go to the other end and say, well, let's explain this away. And so here's why it doesn't mean what it looks like it says. And so for us, for me in particular, and for how we are leading the church, we've decided to land on the truth that we understand that the tension in Scripture between free will and God's sovereignty is pretty apparent. It seems to exist on multiple levels and all over the place. There are verses that talk about choose, repent, decide to follow. And then there's other voices that says God chose you before the foundations of the world, that you have been elected. And there's tension between these verses. And depending on who you read, you can find arguments for and against interpretation on both of those sides. But I really believe the safest bet, whichever end of the spectrum you're on, is to understand the reality that there's tension in these passages. And we need to just learn to be okay with that. Because there, there's, if you want to talk about evangelism, there's relief in that. Because on one end, I don't know who's going to respond to the gospel and who's not. So I want to spread seed everywhere, do I not? But, but on the other end, if someone isn't responding, if someone's rejecting me, it's not on me. My goal is to just give the message of the gospel and let God worry about the details of how all those things plan out. So some would say um, that we have to convince them. And I don't believe that's our responsibility to convince them. We speak the truth and let God's spirit work in their hearts. But then others on the, the hyper-Calvinistic end would say, you don't evangelize to anyone because what if someone gets saved who wasn't meant to be saved? And I just think that's dumb. Like, <laughs> I don't think God's sitting in heaven going, oh, Jeff sin like he got stuck with the, you remember last week the thing the kickball analogy and you getting picked last that's not what God does that's not what God does either so I, I think it's okay to just understand you know what there's tension in these passages and brilliant thinkers have studied these things for a long long time and yet the debate continues and so what shot does Pastor Jeff in Medford, Oregon in a gym? We can't even figure out volume level in our worship yet. I definitely have not solved the Calvinism Arminian debate. What, what I do know is this don't just throw it out. Don't, don't just pick your side and then say that anyone who believes otherwise doesn't know what they're talking about because there's tension in a lot of the scriptures. And, and I, I think that's on purpose. I, I think God never, I mean, I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's some passage about leaning not on your own understanding. And I really believe that God wants us to come to him and wrestle through these kinds of things. And, and I think that's okay. So our stance here with those kind of things is teach him for what it is when we get there. Be okay with the tension and then move on and let's not get bogged down with peripheral issues when there are much bigger things at play. And so, for example, in this story, the, the, the purpose of Jesus teaching this parable is not so that we would spend an hour debating Calvinism on a Wednesday night. The purpose is he's talking about the kingdom of God and about who receives the gospel and how that is processed and what happens with it. So I don't think we need to, to, to camp out a lot on, on saying, well, this is proof of Calvinism. I don't think that's necessary. I think there are a lot of factors at play. There's, you've got the disciples here who are in the midst of a crowd. There's true followers and there's those who are not. And Jesus, at this point, he's moving on to harder teachings. If you watch what Jesus teaches along, he's moving into much harder teachings. And he does that as he teaches because he's training up disciples and he doesn't want them to stay babies anymore, as we talked about with Paul this weekend. So he's moving on to bigger truths and he's training these men for a specific purpose because when he's gone, they're the ones that are going to spread the kingdom everywhere. 
So there's a point where he's like, there's some things I need them to understand, but these crowds are pressing on me at the same time too. And so parables, just maybe, parables are the way that Jesus is able to convey these truths to the disciples so that the true followers who want to understand his teaching, they're not just there to get better vision or something like that. They're there because of the teaching. They will come to him as the disciples did and say, so what was that whole teaching about? Not just, um, can you sign my t-shirt and can I get, you know, can I get healed real quick or whatever the case might be, that he's looking for true followers. And so if you're not a true follower and you go to, let's go see this guy, I've heard he does amazing things and you show up and he's like, there once was a farmer. You know, at, at a certain point, you're gonna be like, I don't see what all the hype was about. And, and it's going to naturally weed the true disciples of Jesus and those who are actual disciples. Just maybe that's what he's doing here in this case. But there's no denying he's intentionally hiding truth from people. And we need to learn to just kind of be okay with that and trust that Jesus is way smarter than me. And so this is what he's doing here. He's teaching not for a crowd in general, he's teaching for them. But just so that we don't get a a misunderstanding. Please know, coming up in the book of Mark, there's gonna be a time when that, all these crowds are there, they're all pressing on him, and it's gonna say that he looked upon this crowd with great compassion because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. So, So don't take that too far and go, Jesus only cared about the disciples and he didn't care about anyone else, and he was just only gonna talk to them so they're talking in pig Latin or something so nobody else will understand. He has great compassion. And Jesus is not turning away those. He turns away no one who comes to him. I will in no wise turn them away. So he has compassion on them, but he's also there for a purpose and it's not health insurance, right? So that's what he's doing. He's training these guys up and he's teaching. And so he teaches them in this parable. So what does this parable mean? Well, this is one of the few that Jesus gives a play-by-play on how this whole thing lays out right here in the text. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to, to, be able to uh, learn from. It starts in verse 14. And he's speaking about all these different seeds. So this guy was sowing seed and he throws seed in four different places and four different things happen in those four places. Or they play out, some of the end conclusions are the same, but how things are processed is different in each time. And the first one that he talks about is the farmer throws seed on the hardened path, on the beaten path. Verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So it's helpful to understand that in ancient Palestine, ancient Israel there, the farmland was often done in long, narrow strips, sometimes curving with the curvature of the land and contour of the land. But there would always be every so often these paths that would run through the field. And that was the place where the cattle, the horse, uh, you know, if you're, if you're carrying a cart for harvest, whatever the case may be, and the farmer is able to walk. So there's these little paths and then the fields are on each side of it. And so this is where he's planting. And over time, as you guys know, if you walk on that path enough, it gets pounded down, hard packed, no way anything's gonna grow there. There's places that I'll go fly fishing that are, way out in the mountains. They don't send crews out to some of these places to go and do work to clear out paths and make sure everything's nice and clear. It's just that over time, that, that dirt has been packed down so well that there's no way weeds are coming back up through that ground anytime soon. And so you can stop fishing in February or in, excuse me, in, in the fall and then come in in the spring and it's still gonna be that same packed down path. There's no way, the seed doesn't have anywhere to go. And so that's the first example here is that there's this particular place where he's throwing seed and as he's throwing seed around, some of the seed lands on this path, this hard packed path. And Jesus says, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So in other words, and it's really an interesting analogy because Jesus is teaching the word. He is the word, right? And he's teaching to a group of people. And the things he's describing in this parable are actually taking place in that moment. He's teaching the word to people, some of which it's just bouncing right off. There's people in the crowd going, I wish he would just hurry up and get done because I want to see if he can fix my knee. 
and they're only there for one thing, and they have no interest whatsoever in anything that he's teaching. They're there for one thing, and they're there for themselves. And so in this analogy, what we understand is if the sower throwing seed is the giving of the word of God, then there are some people for whom the seed never penetrates the soil. It has no shot. And that's the key distinction for the first one. These are people whom you might go and present the gospel to. You might share the gospel with. They might come into our churches. The word is given, but it never penetrates. It never has a shot. And it's, it's an unfortunate thing, but this is reality. This is what happens. So what makes someone, what makes the ground so hard that seed never has a shot to penetrate? Well, Romans 1 tells us that in the end, whatever you want to call it or however you want to classify it, it's sin that does this. Romans 1 gives the picture in Romans 1.18 where it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. He says that the truth has been shown to people, but because of their unrighteousness, they are actively suppressing the truth. Another way of saying it is the way James Montgomery Boyce puts it. He says, people love sin more than they do Jesus. And so their hearts are hardened to Jesus and open to sin. And that that's what happens. They're just closed. I'm not taking any new information today. We're not taking any new clients. I'm pretty busy right over here with this thing. And they're completely consumed with whatever that might be. And you go, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be really sinful, is it? I know people that don't seem like wicked people that aren't open to it. But you got to remember in the book of Romans, what is it that he's talking about in Romans chapter 1? He's saying that God has revealed himself to people and that they've suppressed the truth of God and they've chased after their own desires. They become worshipers of men, worshipers of creation rather than the creator. So I can take a lot of different forms, but in the end, that's really what sin is. It is the choice to pursue something other than God. And so there are those who do this. And so what's the, what's, how does that play out? Romans 1 says, well, they become foolish in their thinking. So they're rejecting God. They're closed to anything. The, the scripture never even has a chance to penetrate their heart at all. And so they become foolish in their thinking. And so you'll have people saying things like, there is no God, which is a really foolish thing for a person who one day will stand before God to say. And so that's what ends up happening. What after that? Their foolish hearts are darkened. They become consumed by their lust. Degradation follows. And the ultimate display at the end of Romans 1 is that they become uh, people who celebrate sin in other people. And we, we see this all over the place today. And so the first person, the first example he gives is when the word of God comes forth, there are going to be those for whom the seed never, had, never once penetrates soil at all. That's the message of Romans 1. People love sin, sin hardens hearts, and hard hearts reject God. Um, I think the writers of Hebrews understood this, uh, the writer of Hebrews, when he wrote uh, Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Now, think about that verse for a second. That's not a verse that we as Christians should be able to read flippantly. Like, listen to this again. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's a heartbreaking verse. It, it means the person with the hardened heart, there's no, other, there's no other means. There's no plan B. There's nothing else that comes in. It's the grace of God through the word of God or nothing at all. That's a sad thing to think about. I, I think I've told you guys stories. It's been a while now, but um, uh, my next door neighbor is an elderly guy that I'd been, I've been mowing his lawn and doing his leaves for a long, long time. He's um, from Norway originally, or Scandinavia, or some, one of those places up there, and um, lives, it, lives here, 86, no family, really, like one family member in like South Dakota someplace that he never saw. And he was kind of a hermit, just stayed there in his house all the time. And, and I would see, I know he's an old guy, he's, he was, I think he was 86. And I would see he's, he, his yard's not getting mowed, he didn't have a lawn service or anything like that. So I just started mowing his front yard without him asking me, I just did it. 
And, uh, and then I got to know he had a housekeeper that he hired was coming in for a while and she would clean and she's a Christian lady, goes out to trail up there. And so she would come talk to me. Are you the one mowing the lawn? You're a pastor. Oh, this is great. So she's thinking we got him surrounded because he's a full on unbeliever, like full on thinks we're idiots for coming to church, kind of unbeliever. And so, so I'm mowing the front yard and he's always skeptical. Oh, someone's just, he's just after something. That was the kind of stuff he would say all the time. So I started mowing his backyard too. And I started, I said, I'm after your backyard. That's what I'm after, man. So I started, started mowing the backyard. And then we would get the leaves when the leaves would fall. And Manny has a big maple tree. But um, we did all of that. After a while, he hired a lawn service. This poor guy. And uh, they found him dead like three weeks ago in the house. And what a sad thing. That guy's heart was so hardened. God bless him, John. I, I pray that in, he, was, he was laying on the couch. I, I, I pray that in his final moments, um, his heart changed. And who knows, man, the grace of God is huge. Who knows what we're gonna find out happened in those last minutes um, bef- before he actually passed. But, but if nothing dramatic happened, this guy's heart was really, really hard to the things of the kingdom. And what a heartbreaking thing that is. Um, I, I've heard people, I, I've done it myself, but I've heard people even at conferences and, and other places talking about the reality of hell and sometimes almost like proving hell in almost a, a bragging sort of way, like it's real and I've proved my point. And, and this happened once at uh, the Gospel Coalition conference we went to a couple of years ago and there was like a panel discussion going on and James McDonald was up there and there was a couple other people and Alistair Begg was up there. And I, I love both of those guys, they're both great preachers. Um, I really love Alistair Begg, Let's see if I can play my favorites, but um, James McDonald, as you know, very brash, very outspoken, very bold guy and he's up there talking about the reality of hell because at the time a book had just gotten a lot of notoriety saying well maybe there is no such thing as hell and so they're up there they're talking about it and they're debating it and they're going back and forth back and forth and James McDonald makes this huge point where he's just like he's nailing it like scripture and this is what it says and just laying it all out there and they just it's real I'm sorry and then Alistair Begg kind of leaned over to him and, he, and in that Scottish accent, he said, I, but can you say that without a tear in your eye? And everything just went, oh. The reality of hell is a heartbreaking thing. A heartbreaking thing. To think that, that my neighbor, that poor guy, who, who wrestled with the same kind of sin I have my whole life, for whatever reason, over time, his heart has hardened. He's hardened his heart. He's chosen to resist the call of God on his life. And I know for a fact from talking with people that God was calling him. He had opportunities. And to see it harden, that's sad. I'm, I'm afraid for him for where he is right now. It's a heartbreaking thing. It's a devastating thing to think through. But here's the good news. <laughs> the good news is, is that in this parable... Who, who's our good gardener? Who, who is the one that brought the word to us in the first place? It's not me. It's Jesus Christ. It's God himself. And God has a way of breaking up stony, hardened soil. He did it for me. Anyone else in here can say that was you at some point? He's got a way of doing that. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 36. Everybody wants to say the Old Testament God is angry. Listen to what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from your uncleanliness and all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And we have a, we have a really good God who if I can carry that gardening analogy out more, has a way of watering the soil, has a way of breaking up soil. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it hurts when God has to get through. I mean, I don't think there's anyone in here who can say we're at a point in our life where we don't go through those seasons where God has to break up some stuff. He said, you know what, Jeff, you're, you're getting closed off over here and I need to bust that up. I'm gonna soften that a little bit. But that, how much better is that than the alternative? So praise God that he will do such things. And so, so understand, 
The people that you know that are the most hard-hearted, no one is outside the reach of the grace of God. Pray for them. Pray for them. Share water. We water all the time whenever we can. Do whatever we can to try to break up that, that soil. But you guys know sometimes you have that relationship where you get to the point and you realize, I can't talk to them anymore. They're not going to have it. But that doesn't mean they're done. You're not the gardener. God is. And so allow God to tend and pray for them. I'd be praying Ezekiel 36 if it were me. So that's the first one. Well, the next one then, it begins in verse 16, the seed on stony ground. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So in Israel, a huge portion of the land in Israel is really shallow, two to three inches deep on top of a limestone bed underneath it. And so uh, good ground has to be tilled and has to be tilled down deep because what happens is the seed gets planted, the soil might look good, but it's only two or three inches deep. And then when the hot summer suns come in, the heat the, the bedrock underneath begins to heat up and it causes the soil temperature to rise way too much. And because those roots haven't been able to make it down to a good source of water that can sustain them through difficult seasons, they dry up. Anyone have sprinkler systems in your yard? You are preventing God's analogy every summer is what you're doing. This is what our sprinklers, our irrigation systems do. They allow us to have nice, beautiful lawns that persevere through hard, hot seasons. But without them, our lawns would dry up. They would brown, rocky, that's what they would be. And so this is the analogy that he gives us here. Um, He's speaking here about shallow hearts. Shallow hearts that maybe are open to God's word, maybe even enthusiastically at first, maybe burning up for Jesus or on fire or different analogies that you might even hear for people at a certain time, but who never have the opportunity, or I shouldn't say opportunity, but whose roots never grow deep and are able to make it into that sustaining uh, water source. I didn't look this up in my studyings, but you guys know very well, it's my favorite Psalm actually, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So, this is the, the picture here is that you have a tree whose roots are going to a consistent water source that's able to, to, to help them exist through dry seasons. Doesn't mean you don't have dry seasons. It just means you have nourishment through dry seasons. And so when you have those who they hear the gospel proclaimed, maybe they come to a church that has music too loud and likes what's going on or whatever the case, and they get really excited about what's going on and we want to just dive right in and I'm in, I'm in, but their roots never grow deep. Well, we all know the truth that sooner or later life comes for you, doesn't it? And things get hard at a certain point. And man, that's when you know. That, that's why it's so important to have a theology of suffering because when, when the heat gets turned up, when stuff gets difficult, that's where you're going to turn to your God. So, so if, if Jesus Christ is your God, when things are difficult, you're going you're, you're to be rooted in. You're going to be turning to him. You're going to be turning to God's people for, for help. You're going to be, and you're going to make it through those things. But if Jesus Christ is not your God, if you're just here because it's enthusiastic or it's something to do, or you see some good looking girl in row five, and so you're trying to get to know her or whatever the case may be, when life comes and when things get hard and get hotter and that temperature begins to turn up, that's when you're going to turn to your God. And so for some people, it becomes drugs. For other people, it becomes sex. For other people, it becomes money. I'll do it myself, whatever the case may be. And you end up turning to that thing that is your functional idol at that time. And this is really sad. This is really sad because you're here, you're talking about people here who come into the church, who hear the gospel, who hear the word, and they're receiving it. And, it, and then it still stops. What a tragic thing when it doesn't proceed past that point. It's like you're there. And the, the sad truth is, 
is this Sunday, there'll be a bunch of those in this room. I guarantee you, there will. Um, Tim Keller takes it a, a step, no, I'm sorry, Kent Hughes takes it another step further. And he says there's a sad af- effect of those in this category that a lot of people don't consider. He says this, the wood from which most anti-Christians are cut is this. They are almost always former half-Christians. A person who lets Jesus only halfway into his heart is far poorer than a 100% worldling. He does not get the peace that passes understanding, but he's lost the world's peace because his naivety, naivete, naivety, his innocence has been taken from him. That's what Kent Hughes says. So, so he says, for these people, this tends to be, in a lot of cases, those who become the full-on atheists because they've, they've come into the church just enough, but when life turned up the heat and God didn't persevere them through it, they bailed on something else, then they, can, they tend to stop and look back and go, yeah, they, that ch- the church has nothing for me. They don't have the answers to anything. And it was because they were never rooted in in the first place. And it's just sad to think that there will be people, this Easter, we will have a ton of them in this room. A ton of them. Who, who come on Easter Sunday out of some really weird sense that says that they have to. Even though that same force that says you have to go to church on Easter, this religious desire, I've got to go on Easter, doesn't have any authority in their life anywhere else. But they'll be here on Easter. And they might be moved by the worship. They might be moved by the teaching. They might come up here even and get baptized. But what happens after that? Well, this is where for us as disciples, it's important, I believe, for us to to realize that when we come to church, we're coming to be on. Even if you're not, I'm not talking about just being in the kids wing or setting up chairs. I'm talking about when we come into the sanctuary and we see people around us, the person who's sitting by themselves, the person that you've never met before, where we want to do whatever we can to throw arms around people and help pull them in so that they have opportunity for their roots to actually grow to help them to have the kind of community around them so that when life does turn up the heat, we are there for them, not those old idols of the past. And to help them get grafted in and connected. And this is why it should also be a warning sign for us as believers when we see other people slipping away. Because life's going to get hard. And we need to be able to look out for one another. As, as disciples, we are also disciple makers. And so we ought not get to a place where we go, oh man, they came up and got baptized. Praise the Lord, I'm glad they did that. Let's move on to the next one. No, no, your work has just started. Your work has just started. I mean, it took me years of my life before I full on surrendered and said, you are my Lord. I, I have been blowing all of this, but I, I understood truths of the gospel. But there's a difference between I'm laying, I'm picking up my cross and following you. And, and sometimes that might take a season for some. Um, there's tons of books that are out there now about um, uh, things like, you've heard it referred to, for example, the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into your heart, some of those kind of things, which can be really beautiful things um, if they're followed with discipleship. But for a lot of people, it's almost like a religious magic phrase that then we make people think that, okay, you said it when you were six, oh, you're gold, you're in. Um, But their life never changes and there's no fruit, which we're gonna get to in a minute, don't wanna give away the end, fruit's important. And so for us, if you know people that are, that are, if they're coming to church, that's step one of many steps. If they've prayed the sinner's prayer, praise God for that. If they've gotten baptized, praise God for that. But, but now we are disciple makers and we come alongside these people and we walk with them through life. We're there when they have difficult seasons. We're there to remind them about the truths of scripture. We're there to, to help point them in the right direction so that they receive the water that they need to last through dry seasons. Because without them, someone who's just a half convert, if you will, I don't think there is such a thing, but it's the word Kent Hughes used and he's smarter than me, so I'll use it. Um, Without them, they won't last. They burn up and they fade. So that's the second one. The third one, the seed and the weeds. Verse 18, and others are ones sown among thorns. They're those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the divided heart. So we've had the stony heart, we've had the shallow heart, now we have the divided heart. 
And the divided heart is a heart that's got a lot of different things going on and it's putting its focus and its attention in a lot of different places at one time. And as a result, it's not really going anywhere. Um, And so he mentions specifically the worries of life, which translates literally the distractions of this age. So that'd be someone who, I have Jesus, but then I also have my career I got to worry about, which is also really important. And then I have this and I have this. And there's equality within the hierarchy of their life, if you will, among those things. And so Jesus is no more important than this, 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 or this. And important things, right? Careers are important things. Not trying to mock someone for that, but, but there's, they're not on equal with God. They're not. Um, the second one, the deceitfulness of wealth. Um, I don't want to give too much away because in Mark chapter 10, we'll get to look at it a lot. But Mark chapter 10 is the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what do I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus kind of lays down the old Mosaic law for him. And he says, I've done all of that, which baloney, right? I mean, we're all calling baloney on that, right? But that's what he says. And so then Jesus says, well, one thing you lack, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give them away to the poor and follow me. And it says, and he left in misery. He left weeping and crying because he knew that he couldn't do it. His heart was divided. And so for him, Jesus was intriguing and worth following and had something to offer, but not as important as the money. That's why he'll go on to say in Matthew 19, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Riches and wealth are incredibly alluring incredibly alluring. At this point, if we still chase money over Jesus here within the church, if we in this group are still doing that, we have no excuse for that. You know what I mean? Like we've got all the news and all the web Justin Bieber stories and all that kind of stuff. We know, we absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that money is not what's going to bring happiness. We know that, do we not? But we still want it. We still, it doesn't bring me happiness, but a little bit more would help with some worries, <laughs> right? Just be careful. We just have to be careful, all of us. It's, it's, it's subtle. You don't have to be rich to fall in that category. Some of the most materialistic people I've ever met are in Uganda and have nothing, but all they can think about is what they wish they had. And then the last one is desires for other things. Material things, um, relationships, I've seen devoted followers of Jesus abandon church, abandon all of that because they're uh, of a boy or of a girl. And just suddenly, you know, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Jesus, I'm with Steve, I'm with Steve, I'm with Steve. And then when that doesn't pan out, I'm back with Jesus, back with Jesus. You know, I've seen that happen before. Don't let that happen. Sports, that can be one, right? playing and they don't make it easy for us with kids anymore do they Um, because it's there's no seasons anymore it's just soccer when does it start it's on when does it end never it's of the devil anyway another story Um, children children child-centered marriages don't work Child-centered marriages don't work. And, and we can make our entire life revolve around our children, but that's idolatry. And you've now put your children into the place of God where you're now gonna follow what the children need before you're going, what does God desire? And, and child-centered marriages don't last because when the kids grow up and move out, um, couples don't know what to do anymore. And it's tragic, the stuff that happens. I've seen it all the time. When our heart's divided, God and his word tend to take a back seat. The kingdom of God falls behind the kingdom of self. Um, And we see this with the rich young ruler. It was a guy who who seemed to have a heart to follow Jesus, but just couldn't let go. Um, That's why Jesus will say also, no man can serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that's the seed in the weeds. The word's been given, but there's a lot of other stuff going on in my heart right now and I don't have time and so I'm going to have to push that aside while I focus on these other deals and and it just gets kind of choked out like a weed. And by the way, just be warned, weeds grow gradually, you know? 
And, and have you ever noticed you're mowing your lawn and you've mowed it and you've mowed it and you've mowed it and then one day you just realize, you know, what's that one weed? I don't know what it's called, but it just spreads out like a pancake and flattens everything else down. And, and those things, they grow slow, but then when you finally pull it up, there's like a whole dead spot underneath that. You know what I'm talking about? They grow slowly though. It doesn't happen just overnight. And so just be on guard for that within your own hearts. And then finally, the seed in fertile soil. Verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This is the seed that lands in an open heart, the fertile soil of an open heart. Um, this is the heart that allows God's word to penetrate, um, allows God's word to um, marinate, if you will, to grow, and key to produce fruit. Spiritual fruit is absolutely necessary. It is a recurring evidence within scripture of genuine repentance. Now, are we saved by works or things that we do? Are we saved by anything that we do? No, we are not. But if we are saved, should we have no works? No, no. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The point being, No, no. We're not saved by our works, but when we're saved, God's going to do works through us. Ephesians says that's why he saved us and he has prepared for us good works for us to walk in. And so the person who receives the word of God, their heart is open to God and the seed plants, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to produce fruit. Now there's different, different kinds. It's the presence of fruit that's most important, not the amount. He says some's 30-fold, some's 60-fold, some's 100-fold, but there's fruit. Christians are fruity bunches. It's just the way it is um, in more ways than one, but fruit, it is really important. There's a, there's a pendulum swing that happened in evangelicalism in a lot of places where um, where. And this happens all the time. If you study modern Christianity in America, there's this constant swing back and forth between liberalism and fundamentalism back and forth in Christian history. It's all over the place. Um, And so, for example, during World War II, the time of Bonhoeffer, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer came to America and spent some time studying over here in New York and going to different churches, he hated American churches hated them, thought it was the most watered down, frail, weak gospel he had ever heard in his life and said, it's amazing anyone goes to church. I don't know why they bother. Um, But then it swung. So then you go into fundamentalism in the seventies in different areas. And it's even depends on where you live. So there's no real set hard, hard, fast rule to it. But the tendency tends to be, uh, tendency tends to be, that's what tendency means. Redundant. Um, Swinging back and forth between this fundamentalism and liberalism. And one of the ways that that has played out um, historically over the last, in the last really hundred years in America is this, this fight between works and grace. And so you'll have movements where it's all about grace and never about works and don't ever tell people that they have to do stuff and don't ever preach repentance. Just talk about how good Jesus is and how kind Jesus is and don't worry about it. And then you end up with sloppy, liberal kind of Christianity that doesn't really seem to have any kind of rules or, or, or any sort of backbone looks exactly like the world, um, doing things and honoring things that God's word clearly forbids. And people go, wait a minute, I think I read something somewhere that we can't do that anymore. Yeah, switch. And then the thing swings over here. And so then you get people that are like, don't do any, you need to like, just stay in your room all day and read the Bible and nothing else and uh, gouge your eyes out if you daydream. And you know what I mean? Just this back and forth between works and grace, between works and grace. But God is a God of balance. Mercy and truth uphold the throne. Decency and order in service. God has way more balance than we tend to have. And and so we've got to, to resist the belief that if you teach do this or the scriptures say to do that, that you're somehow now circumventing or working against the gospel. That's not true. Um, but, but what you do is you teach the gospel first, right? Because if we just teach the good works, then we teach people that that's why God likes you because you do good things. And then their heart's not open to the gospel and it tends to crush them and then they move on. Um, But if you just teach grace, 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 don't worry about what you have to do, just grace, 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 then they never grow up into maturity. And so the idea is for both. I spent way more time on that than I meant to. 
But works is important. He goes on, look at verse 21. He said to him, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The answer would be, no. You don't buy lamps to leave them under your bed. You buy lamps to produce light. So verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The idea is we have been saved by grace to walk in good works. We have been saved by the grace of God to serve God in the kingdom of God. And they both need to be present. Now, I'm 15 minutes late, so I have to close this up. Um, And I say that, people go, oh, don't, it's not late. And you're like, not me. But some people do. It's mainly the children's ministry people that I like to have mercy on on Wednesday nights, especially when we're asking for help. You know what I mean? Um, So I got to bring this to a close. There's an evangelistic disclaimer that I'll quickly point out, and that's this. If you take this passage to talk specifically about the spread of the gospel to people, like I want to tell people about Jesus, then let me encourage you, understand, in Jesus' own analogy, only a quarter of the people responded in truth. So that means on one hand, you should expect that when you tell people about Jesus, you're probably going to get more people telling you no than telling you yes, and that that's what Jesus' experience was. You're not better than him, so you can rest in that. Um, but, but the other end of that is, is that God's the gardener. We water where we can. We throw seed where we can. But it's really, it's not up to us. And so, so when, we, when we give the gospel and they reject us, Jesus even said to his disciples, they're rejecting me, they're not rejecting you. Um, but then Paul even says in the New Testament, in Corinthians, he says, look, Paul planted, I water, but it's God who gives the increase. So, so we just water, we just plant seeds. That's what we do. So don't, don't, Build evangelism up into such a monumental thing that you think the weight of this person's future rests upon your shoulders. It does not. The rest of the person's future, or the weight of a person's future, rests solely in God's hands. And he can navigate that. He he just wants to include you in the process, both for the joy of seeing someone repent and become a Christian who you've shared with, what a great thing that is, uh, but also for our own personal discipleship because we grow through that stuff. When you you extend yourself and you get beat back sometimes, um, you start leaning on God and going, man, that was really rough. I know, man, that was rough. But you know, I got beat down for you. Did you know that? That's right. So I can do this some more. And we start to grow in our dependency and walk with him. So that's sort of the evangelistic disclaimer. The other one was this. Um, I want to encourage us. You've heard this a million times, this story, but I want to encourage you on this. This doesn't have to just be a a picture of evangelism. He says, I'm I'm sowing the word. And, And sometimes, if you're not careful, you can be one who comes to church all the time and you have that one area of your heart that's become stony. Maybe it's a sin that you know you're harboring and you're not dealing with. Uh, Maybe it's something you know God's telling you to do and you're resisting him. Whatever it is, you're resisting the word of God and you hear it over and over and over and over. Let me beg of you, man, as as it says in Hosea, break up your fallow ground. Like, Be one who can go before the Lord as a disciple of Jesus Christ and say, do I have any stony ground in my heart still, Lord? I'm not perfect yet. You're still working on me. Are there areas in my heart that I have allowed to just get pounded down? Are there things, am I divided in my heart, God? Are there things that I'm putting on par with you that I need to, I need to make some adjustments in what my hierarchy or my, uh, the things that are important in my life are? Are there sins that are beating down your word so that I don't receive it so the word never even has a chance to get in that Satan's taking away, the picture of the birds taking the seed away? Um, are, are there things where I've been really fired up about you, but I haven't grown in maturity in these issues and I'm just a little bit dangerous maybe in some of these areas or whatever the case may be. God, are there areas in my life where I just need maturity? Where, where I've got a little seed, but, but I need to give it some time and maybe seek some godly counsel and, and spend some time with someone who's maybe been through these things before and grow a little bit myself. God, what do you have for me in that? I wanna encourage us because disciples are those who hear the word of God who receive it and it produces fruit in their life. And and the interesting thing, we didn't have time to break it all down, so you're just gonna have to take my word for it tonight. You can email me if you want later. But when he talks, when Jesus talks about hearing, the first time this person's hearing the word and they rejected it, the second person hearing, rejected it, the third person hearing, those first three 
who it did not produce the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, the ones who were not Christians, didn't produce that fruit in their life. He uses a word for hearing that means kind of like in one ear, out the other. You know what I mean? They heard it. Yeah, I heard it, but didn't like hear it. But the word that Jesus uses the fourth time, um, it's a tense that, that means continual hearing, like constantly hearing, not, not just hearing once, but like hearing. I'm a person now who hears. And so, so I, I don't think this necessarily only applies to, well, you've already got the gospel. I'm already in, man. I'm fertile soil. Good. But what else are you hearing from God right now? Where else is God speaking to you right now? Because disciples continue to hear the word of God, receive the word of God, and then ask that God, by the power of his spirit, will use that word to produce fruit in their life. So maybe there's places in our own heart where we've got some fallow ground that needs to be broken up. And I want to encourage you, those of you that are serious about your walk with God and want to be a disciple, you want to grow in him, no matter how scary that area is, it's a sin, it's something you're holding too tightly of that you need to let go of, whatever it is, I, I assure you, God is good. He has compassion on you. He has a plan for you. And whatever he has, it is for good and not evil. So I just pray that we would continue to be disciples of Jesus who hear his word. And I mean like hear it. Amen. Will you stand and let's pray?